Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Once upon an August dreary, back from Gen Con, weak and weary, over many a strange and gonzo volume of DCC lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Time to podcast, I muttered, with a movie night in store. Now to get up from the floor. Welcome to the Sanctum Sigourum Podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. And we're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your TCC RPG table. I'm Bob, and with me tonight are Mark. Hello, everyone. And any award-winning podcaster, Jen Brinkman. <laughs> Hi. Not, not for our podcast, but still. Yay! Yet. Well, and congratulations to Spellburn. Yes. Uh, yes. 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 That's so well, amazing. You guys are, are wonderful and well-deserved. No, 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 no. See, the the fans are the ones that came out of the woodwork to put us up to that tier. So that just really warms my heart because it means that DCC has that level of following. And yeah, silver is the new gold. But uh, next year, yeah, I think we can pull some more out of the woodworks. Anyhow, uh, exhausted and short on time, back from Gen Con, tonight is movie night. So we did Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, as directed by Roger Corman. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that one, Mark? Dr. Erasmus Craven, who does not belong to the Brotherhood of Magicians, grieves the loss of his beloved wife Lenore and lives in a castle with his daughter Estelle. One day a raven knocks on his window, and Dr. Craven learns that the bird is actually the magician Dr. Aldolfus Bedlow that was turned into a raven after challenging the powerful magician Dr. Scarabus that was an enemy of his father. Dr. Craven makes a potion to turn Dr. Bedlow back to his human form, and Dr. Bedlow tells that he has seen Lenore in the castle of Dr. Scarabus. Dr. Craven decides to go in his coach with Dr. Bedlow to visit Dr. Scarabus and Estella, and Dr. Bedlow's son Rexford decide to go with them. They find an amicable Dr. Scarabus that invites them to stay for the night. Was Dr. Craven's father wrong about Dr. Scarabus? No. No, he was not. <laughs> <laughs> when Dr. Scarabus is Boris Karloff, no, no, he was not. Am, am, am I the only one who thought Dr. Scarabus looked a lot like the Pope? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially in his duel. He's he's wearing that robe and he's sitting there in that high chair. He looks very pontificate. Oh, I'm Boris Karloff hated that robe because it was so heavy. He As opposed to the one that Bedlow was having to try to pull on with the sleeves that were four times as long as they should have been. Or the first one that looked to be like a set of drapes. 
<laughs> Folks, you have to understand that Roger Corman and Peter Lorre had done a short Poe adaptation for television that was kind of comedic, and Corman wanted to do a full-fledged comedic Poe, and this is it. And oh my god, was it entertaining. <laughs> I was not expecting it to be comedic Poe. I was really... I was really amused and surprised. <laughs> no, I, I didn't know what to expect at all. But seeing the look on your face when you were telling me about it at Gen Con, I was, uh, <laughs> I was really glad to have the heads up. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Well, it's, it's so filled with ad libs. I mean, half of Peter Lorre's lines are ad libs, and all the little bits of business, like Vincent Price constantly running into the telescope in the opening scene. That was all improv as well. They just had a lot of fun with it. So we've learned that telescopes are really only useful for keeping people off the terrace. <laughs> right. Okay. And of course, we had a very young Jack Nicholson. I didn't even recognize him. I had to look on IMDb and go, oh my God, that really was him. Oh my gosh. I was. We were watching the movie. So it was my wife and I were watching it before Gen Con. And he looks very sort of vaguely familiar. And my wife is, you know, that is Jack Nicholson. I was convinced it wasn't until he turns full face on in the camera. And you get that sort of pre-70s Jack Nicholson look. And he's playing such a non-Jack Nicholson type character. It was an interesting role for him, but just amazing when, I, when it was discovered that, yes, that's who it was. He had nice things to say about Everyone that he worked with on that movie, except Jack Nicholson said the raven pooped on everybody. <laughs> really, especially like the poop on him. He said, I'd look down when the raven flew off my shoulder and it would be covered in poop. I hated that bird. <laughs> well, you know, never work with animals or children. When you look at you know this comedic movie, the screenplay is by Richard Matheson, who wrote I Legend. Uh, wow. Uh, you know, such, a, such a classic, dark and... All this comedy was was fantastic. It was almost like a small sort of project that Roger Corman you know put together because I think I think I read that the filming was done in two weeks or fifteen days or something like that. And so it just seemed that it was not necessarily rushed, but it was laughing the entire way. You know, when they were filming it and putting it together, but it it was not a serious endeavor for anyone involved except maybe maybe Boris Karloff who. Who might have taken it a little too seriously. <laughs> There's a promo picture of the three of them, Peter Laurie, Vincent Price, and Boris Karloff, during a break in shooting the fire pit in Scarabus's lobby, for a better word. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a photo of the three of them making s'mores. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, that that right. makes it better. <laughs> so, oh, that, I mean... It was a really small, tight cast. I mean, what, six people, if you count the person playing Lenore? Um, the coachman, though. You have that. The, oh, the coachman, shoot. the servant, and the okay, maid. So that's nine. Yeah. Still pretty nice. I was really tickled by the fact that there were so many similarities between the sets as well. Everyone has the same red tapers in their candelabras. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I've got this litany of things that we've learned. Never trust the smart-ass talking birds. You know, never trust the wine. It can make drunkards extra argumentative. Although, once you get to the end, you kind of wonder if that was uh, a bit of an affectation. The wine could uh, also be milk. That's terrifying. <laughs> oh, milk. No, how varmintous. Yes. <laughs> Is this the accent show? Is this is this oh, Please no. everybody everybody's got a bad Peter Laurie accent <sighs> locked away inside them. You know, keeping dead family members in your house is normal. Where else? And crypts are hard places to keep clean. Um these are things we've learned. Um 
Yeah, it it was. Um, there's actually a novelization. Definitely something. <laughs> so there's a book. I want to hunt it down. I, I've got. Why, to hunt why didn't we read the book? Isn't that more our style? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, Bob. Well, we got. Ba- hey, we got back from Gen Con Thursday night. We're recording this on Sunday. This goes up Friday. No, that's okay. I'm good. Um, Roger Corman and Vincent Price were such a duo for the longest time. Yeah, and he's he's actually one of the highlights of the film. I mean, he, he's he's certainly not the horror Vincent Price. He's the comedic horror Vincent Price, which but is he's, very charming. He's the straight man. Yeah, and but he's also he's also the very amused. You know, he's he's always the one that is in control, even if it doesn't seem like he's in control. He's I, I took him as a kind of a gentleman's sorcerer. Nice laid back. He's got his estate. He doesn't want to get involved in the affairs of the the magician's club. But when it comes to it, he'll come and, you know, defend his father's honor or, you know, make sure that a scarabus is put into his place. It's a very good Vincent Price role. You know, I love the mustache. I love the <laughs> the, the accompanying heavy capes and drapes. It's a very good film. Oh, he, from he the look, costuming. He looks sharp in that traveling suit with the tall blue and gray hat and yeah, it was very anti-Dracula, which was kind of a nice change. And this this certainly was not House on Haunted Hill, Vincent Price. This was the amazing Shrunken Heads commercial, Vincent Price. <laughs> it was sort of the yeah, sort okay. of the Vincent Price that you'd want to have sitting in your family room just so you could kind of hang out and chat with. It was yeah, it was a lot of fun that way. I, I barely put those three leads in when I was watching the movie. I was thinking, was this made after The Good and the Bad and the Ugly? Because they had a very sort of vibe of those characters playing off each other, switching sides, especially like the Peter Lorre character going back and forth between Scarabus and uh, and Vincent Price's character. This was actually made before then, but, it, it, but to me, it also, it just kind of echoed some of that dynamic of the three very strong leads interacting. And that's a very appealing sort of movie to watch because it's not dualistic. You're not taking one side or the other. Um, there's a middle ground that you can always associate yourself with. So I like that about it. Yeah. Well, I love how quotable it is. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Does he favor his mother? No, she favors him. I I was like, that's brilliant. Or um, what was it? Such perfection of treachery fills me with admiration. Hmm. That is, I mean, that's just, that's gold. Yeah. I gotta wonder if some of these aren't lifted straight from (laughs) Poe. Quite a few of the real quotables were ad-libs, like uh, when they go down into the tomb and Peter Laurie's talking about must be a hard place to keep clean. Yeah. Or will I ever see my beloved wife Lenore again? How the hell should I know? All those <laughs> all those little bits from Peter Laurie. Apparently, Peter Laurie was the worst when it came to script, what script, I'm just kind of going to go. Vincent Price adapted and played with it a lot. And Boris Karloff was kind of flummoxed because he was trying to stick to the script as best as possible. Yeah, about that. <laughs> Every time there was a hint of thriller or horror, the scene where the gargoyles are menacing Vincent Price as they're doing the spell duel, it's flipped. He turns them into puppies. Or, <laughs> and it's played up exquisitely like that over and over again. And it, it, But it was, it's nice to see those little touches of sort of the horror element coming in. But, you know, obviously the cast is having a lot of fun, you know, with the confetti that comes out, you know, during the spell duel or... The confetti that falls to a drunken rendition of Old Lang Syne. Right. Every spell duel needs drunken old Lang Syne confetti. <laughs> needs to end that way. Don't mind especially, me. I'll be especially over here if you're playing Lankmark, because that would really confuse everybody. 
<laughs> That's a true phlogist on disturbance. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was just so neat. And of course, as it's been repeatedly mentioned and Ernie Gygax mentioned when he was on the show, this movie was actually very influential in some of the spells for D&D, like Magic Missile and Shield. Oh, Definitely. And seeing it, I understand. And I went back and I, I pulled out my old player's handbook and I pulled out my uh, Blue Holmes D&D. Magic Missile is never described. In Holmes Blue Box, it does damage like you know, like an arrow, but it's never described. And we've kind of come to associate Magic Missile with these arcing bolts of energy but really, they could be anything that's magically summoned and thrown. And that kind of reminded me of when Jen is always saying, people look at a spell in DCC, and because of the title, they assume they know what it does, because they've encountered that spell. Yeah, not so much. I've yeah. run Magic Missile so long, I've always just kind of assumed what they were, and they're really not. They don't have to be. And that's one of the reasons DCC is so great and that the different manifestations for it, it might yes. actually look like a small dagger being thrown as it was in the movie. Well, he threw daggers, he threw axes, he threw a spear. There was a cannon at one time. <laughs> yes, there was, there was a cannon, a cannonball. I was looking at this going, these are all just different manifestations. While this certainly influenced D&D spells, looking back, I'm like, Wow, the spell duel is very relaxed DCC spell duel. Anytime you're doing a spell duel while seated in thrones, just kind of tossing well, things back and forth. Isn't it more just initiative-based? Yes, it was very, I'll take my turn and observe what you're doing as a counter to prepare for that. And it's, and it's set up that way in the, in the movie. It's, it's very slow-paced, but it represents what an initiative battle or base spell duel would really manifest in a game. So At the beginning, it, it almost wasn't even initiative-based so much as I throw something, you counter it, and then you... Th it was They took turns for the longest time. <laughs> I, I started writing this down. The hurled snake turned into a scarf, which has turned into a vampire bat, which has turned into a fan, and then... Oh, that's an interesting, interesting concept, is that that original magic is being recreated in different forms almost which is you know kind of a cool concept in, in a different way of, of viewing it they keep hurling the same sort of initial impetus that dr scarabus throws out uh, but just 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 transforming it and then dr scarabus shows us once again why it is never good to cast fireball inside <laughs> especially repeatedly uh, i i think i wrote it down when i was when i was looking at the movie is nice way to end murder burn hobo their way out of dr scarabus's castle so. <laughs> yeah summon new party but because it was a comedy nobody died right that's right and, yeah. and the villain actually did the hero a service by keeping the greedy wife away <laughs> I, I, right. I thought that was uh, a little refreshing compared to some of the things of this age although what was this 1963 yeah, yeah. Also interesting was that at the end of all the battles, he loses his power. It's sort of implied that he doesn't, he can't cast any magic anymore. He doesn't have the naturalistic magic anymore that he oh, was using. Oh, like he ran to, out. I kind of thought that might have been the mildly racy 1960s joke, just sort of like the wilted wand. He's like, oh, <laughs> I just don't have it in me anymore, honey. Uh... I thought that was the direction they were going. But we also got to see rope work was used. We got to see a D&D &D perfect version of Wizard Lock and a DCC perfect version of Ward Portal, yeah. where the entire door disappeared, which has been the bane of my existence as a judge. <laughs> 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 
Yeah. So since it was so much fun, and since we're already kind of going through general discussion, let's talk about some of the stuff to stat from this. I mean, right off the bat, come on, Doctors Craven, Bedlow, and, and Scarabus. Well, yeah. You could drop them into any number of adventures. And there's there's so many spells. I think of all the spells, though, that I saw that I'd not seen before, I liked the one where Vincent Price was making these straw and bird-filled dummies of himself while appearing someplace else to avoid the spells. So yeah, the that was spear goes cool. through the Yeah, the spear goes through him and he's filled with sawdust. He gets hit with something else and he's filled with birds and he was always someplace else. I really liked that. Yeah, that very magician. And speaking of spell duels, there looked to be kind of a spell duel variant where they both had their hands cast out and they were sending forth these scintillating hand waves. It was sort of like the old D&D gesture for burning hands, where it was this radiant arc coming for both of them. But it, it looked like it only did stunning damage because when Scarabus was overwhelmed, he was just knocked out. He was fine. Oh, so it was much like, like the uh, the valet. Well, and the the valet, I think he hit him with like, I don't know if it was raven feeblement or something but yeah he shot a little ray at him but a non-lethal spell duel where you're not trying to kill each other kind of fits with that whole we are the brotherhood of magicians and sorcerers this is how we normally do things you know we're not trying to kill each other pay no attention to the knives and the spears and that <laughs> well but that was different that remember they did that and he's like this won't work there's only one way to resolve this and they they tried to duel to the death maybe some alternate spell manifestations especially in light of the various magic missile variations and things of that nature there's so many familiar spells in here from lightning bolt fireball magic missile and and certainly it would be easy enough to add additional manifestations. Those are kind of my initial thoughts. Yeah, I think that's kind of a key thing. You know, you could draw a lot of inspiration just from the visuals. Even though it doesn't age very well, it's 1960s, you know. At the time, though, it must have been very impressive in terms of what was being visually displayed on the screen, you know, how they're affecting the actual film and things like that. And it's kind of putting yourself in that place and sort of visualizing, well, how can I take what's you know being represented and apply that to descriptions within the game as a judge or descriptions as a player. So I think it's just, just as a starting point, that's a great thing to do is just look at the movie and use those kind of visuals to augment your own game. Oh, definitely. One of the other things, there seems to be like set up in the beginning, sort of this dichotomy between what I would call mental or natural magic versus sort of a more mechanical or even alchemical magic. So like Dr. Bedlow, when he practices magic, he brings out his instruments. It's a very great way of representing how magic or wizards can cast the same effects, but with different components. But there's also this concept of a more higher level magic, like a sorceress type magic that's more innate. That seems to be the Vincent Price and, and Dr. Scarabus, you know, sort of you know, are able to call on. And it's, it seems to be what the other magicians sort of aspire to, uh, even if they don't want to admit it. Yeah, that, <laughs> that whole magic by just gesture is the best part, as opposed to all the incantations, which were hysterical in and of themselves. Right. <laughs> so, you, I mean, you could almost come up with some type of supplement to the DCC system, certainly where maybe you learn a different way of practicing magic. And that, that gives you right. a benefit for your character, but it takes a quest for it. You have to go find Dr. Craven or Dr. Scarabus and they become a patron, but they, you know, the, one of the things they can do is teach you this other type of magic and suddenly you cast spells in a different way, maybe. And Dr. Bedlow had been asking Craven, how did you learn that? How is it that you can cast just by waving your hands? Hmm. You could actually make, you could make a, a secondary class. 
Well, there's the techno mage in Tim Callahan's Crawljammer work that's mm-hmm. kind of akin to that, but I think you'd want to make it the 15th century equivalent. It's a much more alchemical based, you know, sort of magician. Yeah. You know, that, that would be uh, a DCC version of that instead of the future version. I think that's what uh, Scott Mathis was going for in the follow up to Transylvanian Adventures. Quite possibly. It, Which I mean, we haven't it, seen yet, and it's killing me. Come on, Scott. <laughs> it did seem to me that everything that Bedlow was doing took an additional round. Yes. During the spell duel, Scarabus is just sort of patiently waiting, patiently waiting. <laughs> so yeah, there's some real possibilities there. I like that. Another thing that I thought was, and Poe obviously is one of the big influences that's, that hangs behind a lot of the Impedings N, because all the other Impedings N authors are building off of some of his work, some of you know the the other you know, 19th century authors as well. But there's so much in Poe, either encounters or mini adventures, and it made me think that there may be something there that you could take from the Raven, especially maybe not an, an adventure, but something that, like a puzzle room or an encounter that your players come across, where it's a lyrical poem-based solution, or the, obviously there's. The, the animalistic interactions that could happen there. But just made me think that it's worth going back to Poe and trying to dive into a lot of his works and saying, how could you adapt those to DCC, particularly starting with maybe the Raven itself and, and seeing how you could make that into some sort of mini adventure. I'd actually been thinking the castle of Dr. Scarabus could make it. Oh, yeah. Adventure. That would, that, because it's so filled with that mixture of Gothic and somewhat campy, but it's visually presented so you could lay it out, you could you know easily map it. And I think that, that Part would Part of the ledge well. outside falls away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the last thing I thought was the Raven itself is kind of an intriguing character from the point of view of, you know, is that it's a mixture of familiar and patron-esque kind of qualities. Both, you know, if you if you really reach back to the poem itself, it's got a, like a lot of sort of otherworldliness to it. And I, I thought, you know, it's kind of as a potential patron in a sense, but not necessarily a traditional patron. And, and one of the things that came out during Gen Con was the Dinosaur Call Classics. And um, hmm. <laughs> and so I know something about that because, but the way we did patrons in Dinosaur Call Classics was there's these things called ways. And the ways are basically shamanistic versions oh. of animals like T-Rexes or Triceratops or Pterodons that the shaman sort of learns all about that type of creature and their magic is based on augmenting their abilities to become more like that creature. So a shaman becomes more Tyrannosaurus-like when it draws on the power of the Tyrannosaurus if that's its patron animal. And so I thought that maybe the raven could be something similar to that or other animals could be something similar to that where there's a, a very animalistic type of patron where you're drawing on those abilities and your your spells that you learn from the patron or your invoke patron are based on the animalistic characteristics versus you know just the pure patron itself and and a quick note to our listeners uh if you weren't able to get to gen con hurry up and get the pdf because these little things are tucked in like little gems and you really need the whole layout in front of you so you can just print out what you want <laughs> well yeah the it's, author of that dinosaur crawl classics oh god he's a really great guy what was his name again more uh, 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 mr bruner <laughs> <laughs> and who and and who helped play test all those uh, back at North Texas? Uh, Brinkman's, Brinkman's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of us. <laughs> what about you, Jen? You know, it starts out with Vincent Price waving his hands and creating uh, the form of the Raven in front of him in light, and it it just struck me as more runic magic. And yeah. the spell runic alphabet mortal has a few limitations as opposed to the Elven, but 
we could create even further, quote unquote, alphabets to go with this, you know, maybe one that's just strictly image based or along the lines of hieroglyphics, but not quite so intense, perhaps. But I just loved how the shape of it was forming in the room. And then all of a sudden, the raven is tapping at the window. So obviously a cause and effect there. I like the idea of creating an NPC that has more than one facet, make it two-faced or make that NPC have multiple goals and ambitions like Dr. Bedlow did. How many times did he switch sides? <laughs> you immediately took him for an idiot, but you realize there's a lot more going on. And I'd like to know what can trigger a spell effect. Maybe we could stat up something along those lines where if someone's witnessed the spell being cast. For instance, Estelle tells Rexford the symptoms of the mind control that the butler had been under, and he completely flips out. Not for nothing, uh, Jen failed her fort save watching that crazy horse and cart runaway scene. So yeah, let's lay out some terrain for the Pacific Coast Highway back in the day. (laughs) Right? (laughs) With the sheer cliff drops and yeah, no. The other things I was thinking of were, early on, the the tray of eyeballs. Uh, Who and where did they come from and why? Oh, well, they're part of the component library of his father's, as it turns out. We could make tables with the different components for different effects for polymorph potions as well. For instance, Bedlow's arms were the last thing to turn back, so depending on which component had been left out, that would have made perfect sense. And as it turns out, they needed more dead man's hair, and that's just kind of (laughs) creepy. That actually weirded me out a little bit more than the tray of eyeballs. Yeah. um, Yeah, that's saying something. So, speaking of trays of eyeballs, maybe props and... Audio suggestions? Trains of eyeballs. Where's David Beatty when we need him? (laughs) He would bring that to a convention. He would. would. Right next to the plates of rotting meat. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I think for props, the big thing that I want at my table, and maybe even at Gen Con next time we run it, maybe we'll get Wayne Snyder to build this, is those chairs. Those chairs that they they sat in and spell dueled. We need something like that next year. If we run a tournament... It's got to be two chairs with two PCs facing each other and somehow... And a big, huge candelabra. <laughs> and a big, huge candelabra. <laughs> I mean, those are, those, those are just like, that would be the ultimate sort of, just, it just, it, it lends itself to the visual. It lends itself to, this is a great place for the players to sort of get that feel for the castle, Dr. Scarabus, and you know, everything that makes up what he collects. I just, I just love those. And I think I sort of, you know, came up short when I was thinking of everything else that you could do. But I've got to find a way to get those chairs or something like them. And, and like I There's said, a company in Australia that makes gigantic Gothic-style thrones. They're not cheap, but they're gorgeous. Ah, uh, yeah. So, Wayne, maybe you could look at some pictures of those. <laughs> <laughs> Something tells me the ICC would frown on a big fire pit, though. Even oh, if the gargoyles gosh. were really cool. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe it could be a fountain instead. <laughs> what about you, Jen? <laughs> um, going back to the runic magic, 
I love the idea of like the light projectors. You could form a design on the wall with them. So you get that visual representation of the runic magic as you're casting it. That would be so cool. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's spell components. Grab some old wigs and cut off some locks of hair from that. Get some dead bugs or, you know, go David Beatty on it. You know, have a blast. <laughs> <laughs> Bob. Well, right off the bat, Halloween's coming. So you can buy those animatronic ravens these days at like Halloween Town. Oh, God. And I'm sure you could put a little vocal thing in it so you could get the smart-ass wisecracks, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Peter Laurie's voice in it. Yes, Mm -hmm. I'm a bird. What do you think I'm going to do? Hold it? Uh, (laughs) An assortment of oddly-sized cloaks. (laughs) (laughs) I would say... Buy like a bunch of choir robes in different colors and then use the body of two choir robes to form sleeves for a third because then you'd have that Peter Lorre, how long are these sleeves sort of thing going on. Hey, that that could make for a nice random cultist thing too. Thanks. Yeah. Definitely have to have red candles. That really seems like a thing for all of the Poe works. And then when I got to thinking about music, Les Baxter did the music for The Raven, The Pit and the Pendulum, uh, Tales of Terror, The Fall of the House of Usher, X, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. He did an Aztec-themed album called The Sacred Idol. Um, Roger Corman's movie, The Haunted Palace, the music for that was done by Ronald Stein. And then both Baxter and Stein worked together on the Poe movie, The Premature Burial. In the 60s, if you wanted to literally jazz up the soundtrack to a movie. (laughs) These were the guys you went to. Les Baxter Uh, and his orchestra were huge. I mean, the guy released like 70, 80 jazz albums. I mean, these weren't just nobody's doing soundtracks. These These were fairly big names for the time. And so that's the kind of music I think goes with this movie. That 60s, jazzy, kind of corny, kind of fun, kind of creepy stuff. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> this is Roger Corman, though, the guy that brought yeah. us, like, Sharktopus. So, <laughs> you can keep that in mind. Uh, not, not really known for a lot of incredibly serious stuff. I promise we'll read something next month, guys. Uh- <laughs> we, we will indeed read something next month. This is a great, a great break. And- it, it, it's been fun and entertaining, but it's... Um- hey, we're doing Appendix M. Instead of Ed, how's that? (laughs) Well, it's based on Poe. Joseph Goodman suggested we do Poe. We're doing more Poe, just like Joseph said. Uh, (laughs) That's my story. I'm sticking to it. At least until I get the novelization of this movie. At at, at least for the next week. Yeah, I got it. Uh, So, Jen, what about some DCC Inspirations and Reskin material? Well, I happen to know there's this fun little episode number 11 of Spellburn where... You mean the any award-winning podcast, Spellburn? Yes, and the amazing authors Harley Stroh and Michael Curtis were both guests on that show long before my time, unfortunately. That would have been a blast. And I could swear they either mentioned this movie or maybe I just saw them sitting on those thrones apart from each other. (laughs) (laughs) because I've had the same atmosphere and the same feel of it, just really entertaining and educational. And obviously playing it for laughs as well. Well, for existing adventures and whatnot, Transylvania Adventures, of course, just for that light feel, because even Mathis's setting wasn't 100% dark and gory. It 
also had some light moments in it. I was also thinking of Theater of the Hammed by Clint Bahati. Please tell me I pronounced your name right. Order of the Quill Publishing. It's lighthearted fantasy. So there are some cheesy lines from NPCs. Not very many. It's not as heavy as in this movie. <laughs> but it really just makes it enjoyable as you're going through and you know, there are some things that aren't what they seem or what they should be. And that kind of brings me right back to the everyone stores dead bodies in their house and they treat them with such reverence as they fold the cloth from the casket and then Peter Laurie tosses it over his shoulder. So <laughs> that sort of feeling. And with that symbolic raven, I'm really going to drive for Jewels of the Carnifex. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that deity that Harley created, he knows it's near and dear for different reasons, but yeah, I could see the Carnifex making an appearance here or there throughout this, even if it is a bit more on the serious side. I had a whole list of other things, but to be perfectly honest, I was the last one to fill my list in, so I'll kick <laughs> it over to you, Bob. <laughs> Well, right off the bat, during the spell duel, when he awakened the gargoyles, I was actually reminded of a spell, Imbue the Stone, from the Sanctum <laughs> Companion issue 10, mm. the maker of gargoyles, which was a spell created by Jen Brinkman. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds a little familiar. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, sorry. Any, Any award-winning. <laughs> oh, God, you guys are as bad as Harley. <laughs> You could certainly reskin the Emerald Enchanter, giving folks kind of a different reason to visit as opposed to the original storyline for that and take kind of a darker turn. Mm -hmm. You could turn the 998th Conclave of Wizards into a meeting of the Brotherhood of Magicians and Sorcerers mm -hmm. and set that anywhere. So, so I had that idea. But now, now that I start thinking about lighthearted fantasy, I think right now as we're recording this, Daniel J. Bishop, his ears have perked up. There's a lighthearted fantasy that I have not yet written a module for. And he's probably <laughs> writing it right now. As we're recording. Yeah, all right. That's fair. So, uh, so and really, and any of kind of the light fantasy stuff from Daniel J. Bishop, all of it's all of it's good, and all of that kind of fits this feel. I think. What about you, Mark? I have to echo what you said. When I saw the movie, I was touched by how closely you could make Emerald Enchanter just a Doctor Scarabus's location. Right. It fits so well. It's a great module that I think evokes what you see inside the castle. And so I think that's a great one. The other one was a miracle was framed and huh. that's because the background story is there is two sorcerers or two magicians that are long-term both lovers and you know feuding with each other and one of them fakes their own death in order to to go and regain power but then also enact revenge and i, I think that's a very cool parallel to the movie itself yeah yeah i i have to agree there uh, another one that came up is in this year's Gong Farmers Almanac. Daniel Bishop, uh, <laughs> prolific as he is, seems to. Told you. Seems told you. Oh, so you'd already written it before. before. <laughs> yeah, this is this is not so lighthearted, but it does get more hammer horror than perhaps the Raven, the movie itself. But it's very Vincent Price. I would say very good for fans of Vincent Price. It's called Thirteen Brides of Blood, and. Ooh. Um, it's a complete adventure, and it's Daniel Bishop's quality, so you know it's great. Nice. Um, so that's a good one to check out. Um, the last thing I think that I, that came to mind is Beyond the Silver Scream by Forrest Aguirre. Oh, 
Obviously, it's the movie, the visuals that are in that one. It's a great fish out of water adventure. And um, I think it's it plays very well if you are pairing up a movie inspiration to run his adventure. So definitely check that one out, out also. Very cool. Well, I think that brings us to our DCC feature for the show, the brand spanking new Enter the Dagon by Harley Stroh. Want to tell us about that one, Jen? The Isle of Dagon. To common folk, it presages death, pestilence, and woe. To warlocks, witches, and wizards, the Isle offers a wealth of occult power, forbidden knowledge, and spells beyond the ken of mortal man. But before you can lay claim to the island's secrets, first you must survive its fabled spell duels, a series of death matches where only one caster may reign supreme. Wizards and elves will be tested to the fullest of their abilities. To triumph, parties must also survive the machinations of the other contenders and their wicked retinues. For when vying for the title of Master of Dagon and battling against some of the most powerful sorcerers to tread the known worlds, you will need every advantage you can glean. Will you and your companions sit passively by, awaiting whatever fate befalls you? Or will you take the fight to your foes? And when your life, and those of your companions, hangs on the casting of a single spell, will you have the courage to accept Dagon's challenge? The time for questioning has passed. Black-sailed ships have come to ferry you and your companions to the fabled death matches. It is time to enter the Dagon. Mm, fresh off of the Gen Con presses. And I think quite possibly my favorite DCC adventure now. Oh my gosh. It's it's brilliant. There's so many things I'd love to say about it that I can't because they'd all be spoilers. <laughs> it's a big one. It's over 30 pages. And it is full and rich and, you know, obviously styled after the Enter the Dagon tournaments held the past two years solely by Harley, as it turned out. And this is formed into a nice compact fifth level adventure and i would say suitable for campaign or one-shot use well and i think the cool thing is you're right it's a big book and it's still ten dollars it's regular module price it's got color pages in it it's got some color art in it these are not things you usually find in a DCC module. And so those are nice perks and bonuses with it. And the cover art. Oh my God, the cover art. <laughs> it's lovely. And You're adorable. I, I, I do remember in the booth, I would mention you know, the different modules that were out. And a lot of people were confused or a little bit hesitant to buy this one because they thought it was just the tournament rules sort of codified. And I had to tell them, no, it's a completely different adventure with Harley Stroh's work. And really, it, it seemed there's some hesitation and people shouldn't use that as a barrier to getting into this module. We used it in the tournament this year for the Gen Con tournament. Harley was, you know, obviously the one putting together a lot of the material for the tournament and coming up with the ways that you could streamline the DCC rules. And, and one of the rules that he adopted for the tournament itself was the new spill duel rules that are in the module that he put into the appendix, I guess, area of the, the adventure itself. And so these spell duel rules are somewhat specific to the module, but they can be generalized like we did during the tournament to streamline the existing spell duels for judges who are a little bit hesitant about getting into the spell duel just because of how, um, if they haven't listened to spell burn 11, you know, <laughs> right <laughs> to go over, over the rules and details, these you simplify the tables, they provide a way for 
a patron like creature in this case Dagon you know but you could make that into any deity that was overseeing the lives of the PCs or the NPCs and make the results of the spell duel in the Phlogiston be a result of their anger or their interference, you know, with the spell duel as a result of, you know, the roles. So that I think I would devise this for judges that are looking for both, you know, something that's a great adventure, but also gives you a, a brand new you know, way of looking at spell duels itself. And lest anyone think, oh, it's more Lovecraftian stuff, uh, don't let the name fool you. Uh, I, I think it's a really good title and possibly even just a play on Enter the Dragon. But we don't have the, shall we say, Daniel J. Bishop level of Lovecraftian overtones in this particular one. I do notice some similarities, but minor between this and the 90, 998th Conclave of Wizards, but it's very minor. This uh, this adventure actually has a bit of timeline structure to it. And Which you have I love. scheduled spell duels. And as it alludes on the back of the book, uh, you can sit there and wait until your scheduled time, or you can try to grease some wheels. Well, and the nice thing is, while there's plenty of places to kind of explore and crawl, this adventure is not written as a traditional dungeon crawl. The whole timeline, to me, it feels much more like a Call of Cthulhu adventure. This is going to happen here, this is going to happen here, and how players react to that is going to dictate what happens as things progress, which, which I loved. And one of the reasons why I think this was such a great choice for the movie. (laughs) Getting back to the movie. (laughs) Well, the Order of Dagon could easily be the Brotherhood of Magicians and Sorcerers, especially under Scarabus, who, as opposed to the Grand Master, could be the Master of Dagon. There was, there was all that neat stuff. And yes, uh, Harley Stroh has talked about this kind of started as a tongue in cheek. Three years ago, we need, or, you know, we need Enter the Dragon and we need this. And so Enter the Dagon came about. But I think that Enter the Dagon feels more like a sibling to another child of Enter the Dragon. I think it feels more like the movie Mortal Kombat. In that, <laughs> yeah. in that there's, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, well, one, you've got the island with the big mountain on it as opposed to just kind of a compound. But also there's the mystic stuff going on and everybody backbiting everybody as opposed to just Bruce Lee and a couple people sneaking around. Yeah. Um, but looking looking at some of these casters, uh, there's at least one Chuck Norris in these casters <laughs> that's just going to hurt somebody. <laughs> uh, well, and what I really like is that the Elder Craven was the former Grandmaster of the Brotherhood and Dr. Scarabus referred to himself as a competitor and a contestant of Craven's father. Yeah. So that really kind of ties everything up pretty tidily, I think. But but the writing for this is fantastic. There's a lot of creepy little facets. I think that while it's not blatantly Lovecraftian, you know, yes, the patron Dagon is used, but there's not a bunch of deep ones walking around. The various creatures that you encounter still feel very creepy Lovecraftian. Once you get past the title, Enter the Dagon, which is a little tongue-in-cheek, this is a really dark module. This is Sutures of the Semptress level. Especially the full description of the bridge. The bridge and, we'll just and what happens after that. The, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is really good. This is really dark. And it, I can wax poetic about it without giving a whole lot away, which... It's also a really good selling point, right? 
Yeah, and it just it makes for brilliant, brilliant reading. I mean, just reading it was fun. I mean, and what on the the cover is Renox the White Magister facing off with like Casca the Corrupter. I, all of the just reading the the other wizards that are involved in the spell duels and their various corruptions and their retinues gives me as a player an idea for things to do the next time I'm running a wizard as I'm gaining levels to be more than just I'm going through a dungeon. Well, what is the symbol? What symbol would you put on your pennant? Because you are you are not just an adventurer, you are a wizard. Right. Well, before you wax... Uh, more poetic? <laughs> so... I think that kind of wraps up. I think we all like Enter the Dagon. We all had fun with the Raven. So why don't we then move over to our road crew and convention shoutouts? Sounds great. We are the Keepers of Mysteries. So who are the Guardians of Secrets? You can be. Our community events page has gone live and events are starting to filter in. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion. And once you've submitted a few successfully run events, you will be inducted into the roles of the Guardians of Secrets, able to enter your events directly onto the calendar. Members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as this year's free RPG Day Companion and other secret benefits. So the women judges of DCC established the Order of Shanna at Gen Con this year with its founding members, Sarah Brown, Val Emerson, Haley Sketch, Joan Troyer, Evie Walls, and yours truly. The goal is to get more women in gaming, and if you're judging DCC, all the better. But honestly, if we can triple or quadruple that number by Gen Con of next year, I think it would be a very awesome thing. Yay, that'd be great. Yeah. I, th- I think it was amazing that there were so many judges, more faces, you know, at the Goodman Games booth. And just there was a, a larger presence in that in the game room itself from women players and, and women judges. And thank you, Jen, for helping lead that and pathfind, you know, a way for more inclusion you know, from women players into DCC and, and role playing in general. Um, and how about Evie Walls running Inferno Road? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She ran a table at Doug Con. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well. Unfortunately, Haley started school that week, so she wasn't able to run anything. I'd also like to throw a real quick thanks to um, Debbie Sketch and Jen and James Walls for entrusting their ever-so-important judges with me for the evening until, like, 2 in the morning. So, (laughs) (laughs) it was a lot of fun, but we were all very tired by the end of it. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Join the Appendix N Book Club of New York at Mia's Bakery on September 2nd, tomorrow, for their discussion of Sterling E. Lanier's Hyro's Journey. Find any award-winning podcaster, Judge Jeff Goad, if he has finished recovering, for more info, or simply be at Mia's Bakery on September 2nd at noon, and tune in to Judge Jeff Goad's new project, the Non-Gaming Appendix and Book Club Podcast. And Sarah Brown of the Order of Shanna is launching a new campaign using Mike Evans' hubris setting. The first session is Sunday, September 10th at Cullison's Cards and Games in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Jeff Bernstein continues running DCC RPG at Games Plus in Mount Prospect, Illinois. Check with the store for more details. 
friend of the show and guardian of secrets, Troy Tucker, ran some amazing games at Gen Con, including his famed Egyptian-themed DCC, complete with, like, the pharaoh headdress. I'm just so sad he didn't have the space to bring his entire layout that he made. It's beautiful. Maybe next year I'll have us drive it up. Uh, Ideas, yes. Hey, Troy, we drive up. (laughs) He currently (laughs) continues to run DCC at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida on alternating Saturdays. Check with the store or find Troy Tucker on G Plus or Facebook for more information. And when you see him, bug Troy about entering the Rodneys with a submission based on his Egyptian-themed DCC. And Tucson, Arizona's RenCon runs from September 29th to October 1st. Among the folks running games are Brendan LaSalle, running DCC, MCC, and Xcrawl, like he does. Uh, Stuart Dollar, running the MCC Adventures, the Museum at the End of Time, and his follow-up, A Stately Pleasure Dome. And Jason Abden, running Not in Kansas Anymore. And congratulations to this year's Gen Con DCC Tournament winners, The Medieval Knievels. And their upset victory is amazing and epic. Two players in the final round were able to finish that round being judged by Judge Harley himself. Well, and weren't they penalized for, like, not having three people on their team show up? Yeah, we we came into it with no expectations. It was going to be the Sunday morning massacre. They got penalized for three players' deaths right off the bat because they didn't have a full complement. And... Harley, in his running of their game, said it was the best OSR gaming he's seen in 34 years of running and playing games. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. Emily, come on. This is all about Emily and Jason. Awesome. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the the other epic quality of this is that both of them were drop-in players. They had not been able to sign up for the tournament. And so a couple of no-shows, or actually three no-shows in the first round, we had to call out for folks to actually join their table for the you know the people that did, that did show up. And Emily and Jason joined the table, and they carried it all the way to the championship. It was really, really great. And didn't they enter the last round with, like, one lock and three lock, and both of them casters? And <laughs> they, they had a wizard and an elf. They had burned all their <laughs> luck. And they, like I said, I'm so glad that Harley was the judge because... The pedigree of that win, you know, is in my mind unquestionable. You know, with him running it and and him challenging every of their decisions, you know, and, and making sure that they were rolling the dice fairly. The other team, the Blood Stallions, that came in second, was an excellent team that just really dominated the first and the second rounds, and they ran into a room that Harley made so challenging. They they just couldn't get past that initial you know hurdle and spent so much time in that room. By the time they got through it. They only had about an hour left, and they just they never gave up, but they just never could catch up to the medieval Knievels. and it was it was great to see, but also two great teams, you know that that came into that championship. So many great stories, and we're hoping that a lot of those stories from the judges get published in the module when it comes out next year. And there was a gong. Oh my gosh! You don't forget <laughs> Wayne the gong. Yeah, <laughs> Wayne Snyder's gong was awesome, and. I think the quote that I take away from the uh, from the awarding of the of the trophies on Sunday was, "Yep, it was cast a spell. Don't even wait to see if it works. Just run, run, run." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the quote for me was, "They played like they were level zeros, and yeah. you know that they just were super cautious of uh, re, you know 
relearning how to how to run their characters um, in that final round. And they totally should be proud of what they've done. Well, it was a major upset. I mean, the Blood Stallions went in with like all of their stats, almost all of their luck, a full table. Yeah. yeah, it was a it was a big upset. That was that was like the bad news bears beating I don't know the Yankees. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a, a an amazing event to run and be part of. We really had you know great support from the judges, from the writers, you know, and from Eric Dom who was you know running around coordinating everything for you know all the tables. But Michael Bullum, David Beatty, Tim Desheen, Rick Hull, all, you know, all of them did an amazing job, and and I. You can't be prouder of the work they put into it, plus the work Harley did on the the writing and all the writers that contributed and the players. The players are just amazing. So really made a a super special Gen Con, and I hope it was really enjoyable for all the the people that that got to experience it. And that main room was magic. Just walking in, even though we weren't playing anything, that was just a, a really cool vibe. The gong really made it more approachable. A little bit more comfortable. We're not just in another convention hall. Well, and it was broken up. I mean, there was the main tournament room with other stuff going on, and there was the other two DCC rooms. So it wasn't just one giant cavernous space. Right. And that helps. Right. Speaking of winners and congratulations, our heartfelt congratulations here at the Sanctum Scorum to the Any Award Silver Medal winners, Mike Evans for Best Electronic book for his hubris setting and the judges jay of spellburn uh, from from beginning to end all of that well to beginning to now uh job jeffrey jim jen julian jeff jerry (laughs) Uh, (laughs) thank you uh congratulations uh both of those they fantastic wins course you the community made that happen which is is even cooler which jen was talking about at the top of the show but the community made that happen but those are the people that laid that groundwork and put in all that work to put out something that was worthy of an any award and seriously congratulations to all of you well deserved well done and I, I think the uh, Gong Farmer's Almanac should go up next year, too. Ooh, best free product. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's actually intriguing. It's Yeah, right? <laughs> there, there are categories, man. We have the potential between the entire community to do a DCC sweep. Yeah, let's rock it like Chaosium did this year. They got <laughs> oh, like my God. Chaosium walked away with 10 Ennies, 7 gold, 3 silver. Just like um, Seventh Sea came away with so many silvers. Must have been a fantastic feeling for even the editors were getting acknowledged. Gee, Jen, you would know nothing about what a fantastic feeling it was to win it. <laughs> I... It's almost, it's almost like you're channeling any award-winning podcaster, Jen Brinkman. Oh, stop. I think the best was when you worked through the good mid-games booth in your any award-winning... <laughs> Uh, except it's dress the next day. <laughs> and medal. Don't forget you. And medal, she yes. and Jeff were both wearing the medals. Yes. I think Julian ran with his that evening. Uh-huh. I, I don't <laughs> think he took it off. I don't think Jeff took his off either. I saw him at breakfast every day with oh, it. Oh, yeah. And Jen's it was great Jen's sleeping with hers under her pillow. I did not. I did not. But no, well, the, well those deserved. guys work hard on, on the show. I just heard kittens. <laughs> 
I, I feel like they're the real power behind it. You know, just like, you know, Mark puts together a ton of show notes and Bob does all the editing and the zine here and I edit. It's all good. Yeah, you write some stuff, too. As a matter of fact, there was a, a spell that was mentioned in the show, If You the Stone, written by any award-winning podcast. Stop! I'll stop when you take us out. All right, guys. If you want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine, not to be confused with the Garden Farmer's Almanac, which is annual. We would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your Appendix N reading. Remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributions. Zines, modules, even some great Appendix N. Are you running road crew games? Drop us a line to let us know those. You can submit your events or creations to us at the hub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites. And as Bob mentioned, if you submit enough, you can just start putting things on our calendar and join the Guardians of Secrets. In the meantime, if you feel so inclined, drop us an email, comment on the podcast, help us by posting a review on iTunes, visit us on G+, light the watchfires, but not in your living room, because that didn't end up very well for Boris Karloff. Uh, keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion. We hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. And I want to know who the Joker is who followed me on Ello. <laughs> I will find you. Good night. Good night. Good night, guys. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum podcast. Join us again when the Sanctum next opens as we explore Abraham Merritt's Creep Shadow Creep. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2017. I'm bored. Me too. This 24th level dark elf barbarian assassin is lame. Hey, want excitement? I do. Want adventure? Yeah! Then just open up a vein and pray to the Dark Master! Burn some luck and roll a die. Now you're ready to listen to Spellburn. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. Join the band and party like it's 1974. Hey guys, can I play? Sure. sure. Check us out at Spellburn.com or wherever fine iTunes are served. Oh, cool! I summoned a demon horde! Welcome to Glowburn, a podcast dedicated to the mutant crawl classics roleplay game. Podcast.glowburn.org. This is a test.
streets coming from the bunker at Globern. And civilization is cast in ruin. And civilization is cast in ruin. And civilization is cast in ruin.